Boy, I am tired. I did something irresponsible last night. Uh, Don't feel bad for me. I went to the Badger game, and um, I feel like we should have that jump around song like right before the preaching, like right after the worship. Would you guys all do it? Maybe you would do it? Okay. All right, whoever's in charge here should do that at some point. I know the 11 o'clock will be up for it. I don't know about the eight. I don't know if the eight o'clock will be up for it. So uh, I, I spent our five-year anniversary with my wife. We went to, uh, we went to France. Uh, we actually stayed with some relatives that my dad knows. Some of his relatives were, if you don't know this, my dad's Italian. And uh, some of his relatives live in France. And so we stayed with them a little bit. But Parisians, man, it, it, they're different than French people. And it's, it's, it's like New Yorkers, right? If you judge all of Americans by people in New York, right, it wouldn't be fair. And, and that's true of France. Like Paris is the New York City of that. So you kind of get tired after a while being a tourist because they make everything really hard for you on purpose. They go out of their way to make it hard for you. And you end up in lines that you didn't need to be in. It's just a mess. It's so frustrating. And by the end of the week, I kind of got tired of it. And sure enough, we're waiting in line. It's in July. It's like, you know, 120 degrees in the shade. And we're wrapped around this building, like hundreds of people wrapped around this building trying to get into this museum. We finally get in, like two and a half hours of waiting. I think it was two hours and 45 minutes. We get in and we go in there and there's a sign next to a Frenchman there, security guy, who's just loving this, his job. It says, if you have this green pass or this pink pass, you don't have to wait in line. And he's just there watching all of us dumb Americans come in and realize, ah, you didn't have to waste three hours of my life. I could have just walked in and he loves it. He just is sitting there smiling like, yes, merci beaucoup. And I, and so I, and Hannah saw what was, Hannah knows me too well. Like, I'm just not gonna tolerate that. <laughs> just, so she saw me and she, she see, I didn't even do anything. She just looked at me and she says, what are you gonna do? That she knows something is gonna happen. And sure enough, I grabbed the sign. I start walking out the door and I hear the little Frenchman like, monsieur, see vous play. And I'm like, no, speak in English. And I just walk out. I don't know why I said that. But I just walked out and I'm like, if you have a pink pass, get in there. No line. And the whole city just rushes into this museum. And while they were arresting me, they were like, Viva America, they love me. So I wasn't arrested. Uh, I got away. But uh, I just, waiting in the line for no reason. It's got to be one of the worst feelings. Well, there's a book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes, which has got the passage that we're going to be in this month to kind of frame up our series. The book of Ecclesiastes is written by uh, Solomon, King Solomon. And it's kind of like written from the perspective of a guy who got to the end of line of life. And he goes through all the stuff that's a waste of time. And and it can be kind of depressing to read this book a little bit, but to be honest, there's so much wisdom in it because wisdom is doing the things that are most important, that are worth it, that have value. And he has a long list of stuff. There is a lot in your life that you can waste your time on. And can I be honest with you? There are a few emotions worse than regret. Regret is getting what you wanted giving up a lot of what you want to get what you really wanted only to find out at the end, you didn't really want it. That's a, and that's the end, the book is about the end of the line of life. What has value, what has meaning? There's a lot that doesn't have meaning and there's all in there, you can read it at some point. But there's a few things he calls out that are worth it, that are worth your time, that are worth your treasure, worth your talent, worth your energy, whatever. And and one of them is in here, we're gonna read it. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter four and this is it. Two, this is it, ready? Two are better than one, 
because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. It is a little allegorical in there. There's some metaphors going on, but this passage is Solomon spotlighting what has value in life, what's worth it. It's community, it's good, healthy relationships. And that's what this whole month is about. And, and what we're gonna do is we're gonna take each section of this passage and talk about why is community valuable? What's good about it? Now I'm gonna be honest with you, I drew the store short end of the stick because last week was, every, last week, it was amazing. Pastor Mark Harris preached here. If you were out in Hortonville, you listen to Pastor Tom Gonzalez's message out there. They were fantastic. Go back and watch both of them. But it was about the first part, which is about being productive. Everybody's like, I wanna, I wanna be productive in life. The next week, next week is about comfort in times of suffering, because weather is, you know, if you're cold, weather you can't control. Back then, when they wrote this, you can't control weather. So uh, when you go through the coldness of life, the suffering in life, it's good to have community around you that can help you get through that. The last one, getting stronger, getting better, you know, you know getting stronger in life, that's, that everybody wants that. But the one I got this week is help when you fall which is when you fail, right? It's when you step in something, when you do something wrong, and you have someone to come along and help pick you up. And if I'm honest with you, of all the things that make up our friendships and families and communities, this is the tough one. Everyone wants the other stuff, but this one's like, no, thank you. This is the one that where communities end. This is the one where people leave churches, like someone confronted them on something and they're out, and now I'm leaving, the church, or I'm leaving that friendship. This is the tough one. But I'm gonna be honest with you, and this is true of life, usually the hardest thing in life is the best thing. Usually the hardest thing is the best thing. And if I'm honest with you, this passage is not about get three out of four and you have community, you have good relationships in your life. You're not lonely. They work as a system. They all got, you gotta have all four of these things. Because here's the reality, let me tell you something. If you have all of these other three things, people that give you comfort when you're going through hard times, people that make you more productive at whatever you're doing in life, people that help you get stronger, but you don't have anybody that can tell you when you mess up, you don't have anybody that can tell you when you're wrong, then guess what? You got a friendship with just yourself. That's maybe why you feel lonely and you got all these friends, because every time somebody confronts you, you're out. Every time, every time someone in your Bible study says, hey, you know, I see something in your life, you're out. And you wonder why you feel lonely. It's because you've, you've got all the other three things, but if you don't have all of them, if you don't have people in your life that can tell you you're wrong, then it's just you. You're alone, it's just you. And can I be honest with you, if you treat the church and you treat your, your, your friends in the church and the Christians that way, you probably treat God that way. I mean, let me tell you something. If you don't believe every word in here, if you only like, yeah, I, I read the Bible, I read it and I listen to it, but I only accept the parts that make sense to me in my worldview and what I think God would be like, you know, if it doesn't make sense to me, I might just leave that part of the Bible out. Can I be honest with you? If you don't have a God who can offend your thinking and tell you you're wrong, guess what? You're God. You're God. You're God, yeah, you have to. And it's, it's no wonder why you're lonely. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm just saying, it's no wonder why you're like, God feels so far away. Well, it's because you're God. Look, you ought to be able to read this for the rest of your life and find stuff in there that like, wow, Man, that challenges the way I would think about the world. That's not the way I think about the future and the way things are gonna go down. 
That's not the way I think about marriage. That's not the way I think about relationship. That doesn't make sense to me in my culture. But this is a relationship. God's talking to me. And if he can't tell me stuff I don't know, then I'm God. And I want you to have a relationship with God. I want you to know God loves you. And you can know him and he can talk to you. So what we're gonna do today is we're gonna look at, this is important, we gotta talk about how do we, how do we receive challenge from people? How do, we, how do we allow ourselves to be open and accessible to people challenging us on stuff? And then how do we do it? They're both really hard. So let's go to the Bible on how to do this. Galatians chapter six is where we're gonna be. If you got your Bibles, Galatians six, this is Paul writing to the church in Galatia who had a lot of problems to confront on. You know, everybody's always like, we should get back to the, to the early church, you know, the early church. They were the, let me tell you something. Have you read about the early church? <laughs> they were a mess. Paul's like, y'all gotta stop betraying each other, gossiping each other, sleeping with each other. Y'all's got problems. Okay, but that's, that's what the early church, and he tells them how to confront their issues. So, Galatians 6. Brothers and sisters, this is verse one. If someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, there is a lot in there. Let's start with who we talking about here. Who's the one that we're supposed to, who's the confronted one? Who's the one that's being confronted? It's the, oops, sorry about that. It's the person who's caught in sin. What that, it's a military, if you're, again, if you're in the ancient Greek, you're reading this, and you see that word, it's, it's often used in military it's a little bit like trapped and even ambushed. It's a little bit of both. So, you, so you're like, this person is trapped, meaning it's a pattern. It's not just one big thing or one thing they did. It's a pattern of they're harming themselves or they're harming other people. And they probably don't even know it. It's an ambush. So they don't really know that they're doing this. And lastly, they can't get out of it alone. That's what being caught in is. It's got them. It's got a grip on them, and they can't get out by themselves. And apparently, according to the Bible, there's gonna be stuff in our lives that's gonna happen like that, and the way that God wants to release us from it is he wants to use other people. Have you met people? He wants to use them, though. What kind of people? Well, there's a sandbox of who, who those people can be. And inside that sandbox is spirit-led people, spirit, uh, people who are living by the spirit. Let me just say this, if you're gonna confront somebody, ask yourself, what does it mean, what does it look like to be spirit-led? And we're gonna go through some chunks of that because it's in the passage here, but the Bible talks a lot about being spirit-led. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you and you can quench him, you can stifle him, Paul talks about that in Ephesians, but if you're truly allowing yourself to be led by him, what does that look like? You ought to take inventory first on that because if you're not in that category, if you're not living in that, Paul's saying, you gotta be living the Spirit because how else are you gonna diagnose? How else are you gonna help with this stuff? You gotta be living by the Spirit. So it's this, step one is take some inventory first. But here's, here's what he breaks that down into. The first thing is Spirit-led people, they're aiming for something. It's restoration. You ever like see somebody doing something and you're like, I ought to tell them, I ought to knock them down a few notches. You know, that's what you're thinking, I gotta knock them down. You ought to not do it then, because spirit-led confrontation is motivated by restoring. You're trying to restore the person. And can I be honest with you? If your aim is a certain way, the way you go about getting there is gonna be different than if your aim is a different way. So where are you aiming? 
What do you aim for? Do you want this person to flourish in this area? Do you want them to flourish in their life? If you don't, you ought to be praying and asking God to, to change your motive, or at least get you to that place where that's your aim. Then number two, this is number two, you gotta do it gently. You see the word gentle in there. Um, the word restore, if you're an ancient Greek reader in Galatia and you're reading this, and you see that word restore, what it's gonna conjure up in you, because where, where else it shows up in ancient secular Greek literature is in the um, resetting a joint or a bone. That's where it shows up a lot. There's some other places it shows up, but very often it's a medical term to reset the joint. Um, I know it's kind of a ugh, thought, right? Uh, but I had a friend in fifth grade. He was this really athletic dude, soccer, football, basketball at recess. We'd be playing all of it. And, and he, his name was Jesse, and he was amazing at sports. But one of the things that would happen to him is he would have this thing where his shoulder would pop out of his socket. And, and you would know it's happening because you'd be playing, and all of a sudden you'd hear this huge scream. And then he'd be on the ground, and then he'd like, he'd like have his, like, he'd be like, hey, can you? And you're like, sure. And he's like, just pull this really hard. Just, and like, pull it? Like, you look like, he's like, yeah, just, and you'd pull it, and he'd be like, ah! <laughs> and then he would smile. He'd be like, ah, oh, thank you. And I realized that's what it is to reset a joint. There's a progression to it. Everybody else thought this was disgusting. I thought it was so cool. That was awesome. I was like, I wish my shoulder would do that. It's <laughs> a weird kid. Um, but here's the progression. Ready for this? The first part is it's a scream, right? When this happens, he's like, ah, there's some screaming going on. There's problems in, in his life at that point. They're screaming. The second step, though, and this is so important. Don't rush through the Bible. Don't skip stuff. This is so important. The second part of restoring a joint is the screaming gets louder. It gets worse. It gets, it gets more confrontational. And then, after some time, after you do that work, then there's a smile, then there's healing, then there's restoration. Listen, if you're gonna confront somebody, you, you gotta take inventory, and then you gotta get ready. Like, you gotta be ready, because what's gonna happen when you confront somebody is there's gonna be some screaming, and it's gonna get louder. <laughs> It's gonna get louder, and if you're not prepared with the response the Bible tells you to have, which is gentleness, guess what? You're going to scream louder. You're gonna scream back. You're gonna be like, hey, I gotta confront you on something, and then you're gonna start confronting, and then they're gonna, they're gonna bite your head off. <laughs> That's, they're gonna come at you, right? And then you're gonna power up, and you're, gonna, and you're like, you have gotta be ready. They're gonna do that. That's what happens. It's actually natural response almost, right? And most of us aren't godly enough to get rid of all of our unnatural responses. They're gonna be defensive, they're gonna come at you, they're gonna whatever, and they might even blow up and leave. You gotta be gentle. You gotta leave grace and space for that kind of response. You just gotta be ready for it. Jesus puts it like this. In Matthew chapter seven, he uses this. He says, if you're gonna confront somebody, it's like taking a sliver or a speck off of their eye. Now, you realize this. He, for that metaphor, for that like illustration, he could have picked any body part. You realize that, like he could have been like, hey listen, if you're gonna confront somebody, it's like pulling a speck off of their, the calloused over part of their hand. He didn't say that. Don't read the Bible so fast. He said, hi. You ever, you ever go touch something on someone's eye? What's the, what's the first thing they do? <laughs> right? 
If you do it to me, I might punch you. I don't know. I'm doing jujitsu now, so I might put you in a headlock. It's it's the first reaction. It's the natural response. You just gotta be ready for it. Look, if you wanna be good, if we wanna be good at this as a church, you you gotta be gentle when that moment happens. You gotta be ready for it, anticipate it. This is the last, this is the next thing, not the last one, this is the next one, number three. You gotta be humble. You gotta have humility with this. And here's what it is, it's not like a, like a fake humility, it's humility from looking at the reality of who you are in context of all this sin stuff. You gotta deal honestly with it. And the way, so what Paul says is, is, is be careful you also don't fall into temptation. What he's saying is if you, need to, you, if you can't approach this confrontational moment, understanding and believing that it is by the skin of your teeth. No, the grace of God, the spirit that you're living by, holding back a tsunami of temptation, it is by God's grace that you're not dealing with the exact same sin the exact same problem, then you can't confront them. If you, listen, if you don't have the kind of humility that says, uh, you know what, I'm confronting us, but it is by God's grace alone that I am not in, I, I, and if that doesn't come through your pores, then you probably can't do this. Because you've got to have humility with this. The way Jesus puts it in that Matthew 7 passage about the eye, is he says, before you deal with the speck in your neighbor's eye, consider the log in yours. Now, this is what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you always have a bigger problem than the other guy. That's not what it means. It means by comparison to your issues with God, it's a log compared to the issues between the two of you. I mean, comparing your issues and the other person's issues is like dealing with a speck between the issues between you and God, it's a log. Listen. You'll never be more offended than the way you offend the holy God. I, I don't care how offended you've been. And if you're like, hey, listen, you, you don't know what they've done to me. You don't know how big that speck is, Brian. Let me tell you something. I promise you, you have no idea how bad your sin is. We, none of us do. We will never know. Sin is always worse than we think it is. It's all, the creator, God, had to come and die. He had to be crucified. Your, your sin is way worse. It affects your kids. It affects your spouse. It affects your job. It affects your life. It affects you personally more than you'll ever know. So yeah, no, I, I may not know the speck, but let me tell you something. You don't know the log. You don't know how big it is. You'll never, and you gotta have the kind of humility to understand that, look, in that context, I'm walking into this conversation knowing that that's true. And here's what you're doing. When you do that, you're actually saying to the other person, because it's by God's grace alone that I don't have what you have, I'm actually, what you're implying is that I'm inviting you to challenge me in that same issue at some point. I mean, because it's by God's grace, I'm not dealing with it now. But that's not to say that by God's grace, you know, I'm, I might turn from that and I might not do it. If, if it's not for God's grace, I might be in a six months and six weeks, six days, six years, I might be exactly where you are and I'm giving you permission to come in to speak into my life on this issue because that's, I'm not above it. I'm just not above it. That's the kind of humility. Look, this, this is hard stuff. I, gentleness, humility. 
But if you're, if you're at church, man, we don't get a hall pass on doing this. And I know people, and you might be sitting there going, look, the reason I'm in church for the first time today, or the reason I'm coming back and thinking about it is because there's a lot of people that get this wrong. I get it. But it doesn't mean we don't do it at all. It just means we let's let God's word tell us how to do it. And try to align our lives, do the hard work of being obedient to what Jesus says and how to do this, what the Bible says. The last part is this, and this, this may be one of the toughest reasons, maybe why you're out, and I wanna do it. You gotta get close enough to them. You gotta be willing to let the burden of their struggle and all the stuff that's gonna take to bring restoration, you gotta let that burden slide onto your back. At least some of it. You gotta let some of it come over onto your back. You gotta be willing to co-labor and carry that burden with you. You can't just go up to somebody and be like, hey, listen, I'm just telling you this, you got an issue. <laughs> Good luck with that. And then walk away. You can't do that. Look, listen to me. If you wanna confront somebody, you gotta go say, listen, I'm confronting you on this, I'm gonna say this. I'm here to help. We're gonna walk together. And my aim is that you're not battling this anymore. It's not harming you. It's not harming your, your relationships. It's not harming us. We're, I'm in it with you. Let's journey through this together. You gotta be willing to let some of that burden slide on your back. And let me tell you something. If you only confront people <laughs> when it does, it's not a burden to you, guess what? You ain't carrying anybody's burden. I love the way Jonathan Edwards says this. He's a Puritan pastor of mine. He's, he's, he's my homeboy. This guy is amazing. He's an incredibly brilliant scholar, theologian, Jonathan Edwards. He says this, if we be never obliged to relieve others' burdens, but when we can do it without burdening ourselves, if that's the only time we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? He's basically just saying, you have to be willing to take some of the load of helping these people through the restoration process it may cost you time on your calendar. There has to be priorities that you have got to slide back maybe, things you want to do, trips, things, entertainment, fun stuff. You got to put it back. It's going to cost you, maybe even financially. If you're like, I can't help them because I don't have enough money. Well, maybe that's exactly why you should be helping them because it should cost you. It's a burden to you. That's, that's what this is. And this sounds hard to you. This sounds like this is really hard. Guess what? I got worse news for you. It's impossible without Christ is impossible. And that's why Paul ends this whole little chunk that we've gone through with this, and this is where I'm gonna end today, with fulfilling the law of Christ. He ends it right there. You, you can't do this unless you reframe underneath the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? This is what the law of Christ is. The law of Christ, we, we look back on the communion, last supper night, and there's a moment where Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, a new commandment I give to you. This is the law of Christ. A new commandment I give to you. Not love one another as each other not, or as yourself. That's a, that's a law, that's good. But he says, I'm gonna give you a new one. I want you to love each other as I have loved you. And while he says that, his disciples' feet are still dripping wet. They're still dri he just He just got down on his knees and he washed their feet as a picture of what he's gonna do on the cross. He's gonna take your sin, the stuff that you step in in life, and let me tell you something, if you don't think your feet stink, you just, you walk in this world, this full of, world is full of stuff to step in. You're always walking in this world, you're always stepping in something. As long as your life is progressing, you're always gonna be stepping in something. And you need people around you to wash each other's feet. And Jesus is saying, I want you to do it with each other. 
That's how I'm going to do it, is I want you to do it with each other. I want you to wash each other's feet. As a community, as a church, I want you to do this. I want you to let people have access to the stuff that you're embarrassed about, that you're like, that's ugly. I step in that. I can't get out of it. I'm stuck in it. I, that's what, and he, and he says, I'm going to have you guys do this. And my commandment, my new law, is I want you to love each other the same way I love you. And that's why, that's why I will tell you this. If you're hearing this sermon today, and you're like, listen, I'm out. I don't wanna do it. I've, I've let people deal with that stuff, and I've been betrayed. Let me tell you something. Jesus lived in community, and he was betrayed by Judas. So he, did, he, and he knew that was gonna happen, and he still chose to do it. You don't get a hall pass <laughs> because you don't wanna be in community because you might get betrayed. Jesus was in community, and he got betrayed, and he still did it anyway. And you're his followers. We're his followers. And here's the thing. Jesus says, it's by the way you love each other. In this same context, in the same verse, in the same passage, he says, it's by the way you love each other that the world will know you belong to me. So even if you don't wanna do it, even if you're like, I'm out, would you at least do it so that the people you love that don't know the Lord, your kids, your spouse maybe, your, your relatives, your, your friends that you love that don't know Jesus, would you at least do it for them? Because here's what basically Jesus just said. He said, being in community with other Christians is not just the result of hearing the gospel. It is actually how the gospels preach to the world. You can tell people all day long, I belong to God. I'm one of God's kids. But until they see you loving each other, each other, other, other children of God, like this, where you're letting them deal with your, your weaknesses, your failures, you're, you're letting them call you out on stuff, and then they're shouldering the process of restoration with you. It's only then that your lost brothers and lost neighbors, friends, family are gonna say, boy, you are one of God's kids. You do belong to God. By the way, you guys love each other. Would you at least do it for them, if not for yourself? Do you see the significance of what was at stake here with this whole thing? This is the whole thing, is, is washing each other's feet. And that's what's at stake. All the people that you love that don't know Jesus, that's what's at stake. That's how, that's how the world will know we belong to God. Think about this for a second. 2,000 years ago, Jesus comes to earth, and what he didn't leave behind, he didn't leave behind a book. Think about that. He didn't, he didn't come down at age 33, finish the book, close it up, hand it to the publisher, and say, okay, my work here is done, and then go up. He's not what he did. You know what he left behind? You know what his secret weapon was for getting this thing out? It was a community of people. It was a community of people. That's what he left behind. He didn't write a book. He left. He didn't write. He left it to them to do, and they did it, but he used them, and if you're wondering if I think the Bible's important, it's the Bible that tells me this. So it's pretty important. So it's essential, but he left a community. That's how important it is. That's, that's, that's what he left for this movement. And lastly, I'll say this too. This is the second reason why you have to go back to the law of Christ. You gotta remember the way he loved you. If you don't remember the way he loved you, that Jesus got close enough to you to let your burden slide off of your back onto his back, all of it, not just some of it. He took all of your burden and he put it all on that cross and he let it crush him. He let it kill him. He took all your burden of sin and he let it slide onto himself and he, he died underneath it on the cross and he paid for it. If you don't see that and realize that, you can't do this. Can I tell you something? 
You can't do the work of repenting of sin. It's too embarrassing. It's too shameful. You can't do that work unless you realize that Jesus took all your shame and all your guilt, and he died for it. He let it, he let it crush him on the cross. He took that burden off your back. And so you don't have to have shame. You don't have to be embarrassed. You don't have to, that's him. He took that on the cross. You can walk confidently in him, not in who you are morally, but in his moral performance. You can't repent unless you have let that burden go off your back. And let me tell you something. You can't let somebody else's burden of their finances get in the way of your finances unless you have let the burden of God sustaining everything in your life rest on his back, not yours. You can't let the burden of all the emotional weight of dealing with people's stuff unless you have let the joy of Jesus slide onto your back and replace it with all your fears. You can't do this unless you see the way Jesus loves you. And I believe this. This is, this is maybe one of the most important things you need to hear. And the way Jesus wants you to see that is in each other. Here's what I mean by that. In James chapter five, there's a verse. And it says this, confess your sins, your feet, your failings, your fault, your, when you fall. Confess those things to other humans, other people, other believers. Confess your sins to one another. James is talking to the church. And then he says this, you will be healed. And he doesn't say forgiven. You know, God knows he's like ver vertical for forgiveness. You come to me for forgiveness. Forgiveness is this way, but I'm gonna do the healing this way, horizontally, through each other. I'm gonna do the healing, but I'm gonna use people to do the healing. Is it, I'm gonna say this something, and this is, this, I can't believe I'm saying this, but is it possible that God wants more for your Christian life, more for your life, than just forgiveness? And forgiveness is a lot. You're like, is there more? Apparently, he wants you to be healed as well. And I'm telling you, as a pastor, I've seen it. People, they come in, they, they confess stuff to me that they haven't told to people, and they start confessing. I can just see like they're breathing deeper. There's, there's emotional healing going on. Their relationships get better because they've dealt with stuff in their life. I mean, that's healing all over the place. I don't know. But I, I've wondered, why do we have to do people with that? Like, why did God set it up that way? You don't think I've been like, God, I would rather just do the healing this way as well. Can we do the forgiveness and the healing in one just this way? Do I have to let other people in my life, be, like, I'm a pastor, you know, I'm an Episcopal, I don't want people to see what I stepped in. Do I have to do that the same? Can I just do it this way with you? I, man, I have wondered, why does God make me go to people for the healing part? until I did it, until I started doing this in my life. And I don't know if this is the only reason, but it's one that is for me. You see, I don't know if you're, you deal with this. You might be godlier than me, but I deal with this. When I tell Jesus stuff about my life and I'm confessing stuff to him in the privacy of my own prayer life, you know, I, I, I know he loves me. I try to think about that. I know he forgives me. I try to focus on that. But there's a part of me that just in that moment, I have this, and I know it's a lie, I know it's not true, but I hear this like little whisper that says, 
He loves you because he has to. He loves you because he's God. He has to do that. He has to forgive you. And I know it's not true. I know it's a lie, but, but I just, it's there. Can I tell you what happens? When I confess sin to another person, another person, I tell them the pit that I've fallen into. I tell them what I'm stuck in. I tell them what I'm struggling with. And they get down on their knees. They get close enough to me to shoulder some of the weight of that burden. And they do that and they choose to love me. And they choose to stay with me. And they choose to hear it all and say, that's bad. That's pretty awful. But I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to be humble. I'm going to love you. And I'm going to shoulder this burden with you. I'm going to choose you. There is something. There's something about that. Because what's happening in that moment is you're seeing the image of God show you his real self. And it is a God. He is a God who doesn't love you because he has to. He knows you from the top to the bottom. And guess what? He sees it. He knows it. And then he chooses you. These are his words. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. I choose you. I know it. I see it. It's bad. I love you anyway. I'm going to choose you. I Look, as a church, I don't want to rob you of that. And sometimes the way you see that, the way you feel that and know that is in the image of God in front of you, which is people, Christians, the image of God. And you see them choose to love you, choose to give you grace in spite of everything you just told them. There's a healing to that because what's happening is you're realizing, maybe for the first time in the skin, you're realizing that's God. He saw everything and he looked at me and he looked at the issue and he knew what he had to do and then he stepped into death and laid his life down for me. When you realize that for yourself personally through the body of Christ, you are healed, you are changed. That is community. Let me pray. Lord, in a moment, we're going to sing about how great you are. I just pray, Lord, that that greatness, your glory, your goodness would just bury all of our fears, all of our insecurities, all of our shame. We would see the greatness of you. We would recognize, Lord, that you have buried all the burden that was on our back so that we are set free to repent. We can deal honestly with our stuff because we don't have to be ashamed about it. You've covered all of that. Lord, would you give this church the ability to do the hard work of truly being in community the way you want it, the way you describe it, so that we could see the powerful work of grace and this world might know we belong to you by the way we love each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship together.